Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Soren Kierkegaard's essay, The Present Age, might appear on a first reading rather pessimistic, if not dismal, about the prospects of having an authentic existence for oneself. But if we actually look at it quite carefully, we don't even have to necessarily read between the lines. We just have to read the right lines in this and bring the passages together. We can see that things are actually not that bad in this era of leveling, the public dominating things, getting more and more abstract as it goes along with the press, nullification of contradiction, the loss of passion, and therefore of commitment and genuine action. All of those are in fact true of the era and of the culture and of many individuals, but they don't have to be the only option for any one given person as Kierkegaard shows us. And we're going to talk about how he views the current age, the present age of his time, as actually providing a sort of clarified set of opportunities for a person to live an authentic existence. First of all, we should talk about the different options that lie before any given person. And one of the things that is characteristic of the culture that he's diagnosing is that it sort of precludes some of these options. If it was handing out a poll or a checklist, it wouldn't include some of these options on it because they're not options the age can actually understand well. So the first of these is just to become a creature of one's own age or culture. And this corresponds to what Kierkegaard in other places calls the aesthetic in the aesthetic sort of existence, the aesthetic way of life, where you just kind of flit from thing to thing. And, you know, the, the current age, because it is one that nullifies contradiction and because the public can believe one thing one moment and then believe another thing another moment, it facilitates this kind of rootlessness, never actually settling down and committing to anything, being semi-committed, committed, you could say in principle for a season and then committing to something else just as well. And you know many, many people like this. And there are entire industries that are like this. Fashion industry, for example, is very much like this. There's a danger of the culinary industry lapsing into these, these sorts of things as well. And so one can just essentially be a consumer of the culture or of commodities, and that would be one, one option. And by doing so, one loses out on an authentic existence, but maybe you don't really even miss it. Another possibility he talks about is connecting oneself with others, finding something, you know, bigger than you. And he calls this sociality or association. He devotes a lot of discussion to how people will, you know, line up with each other mathematically so that a certain number of people put together finally cross a certain threshold and become a person or an individual, which sounds paradoxical, but that's how he explains it. 
So they'll write a petition or they'll found a group or they'll, they'll, there'll be some sort of value that is being put forth in some sort of contrary value or anti-value that's being gone against. But the problem with this is that unless you actually have an individual who can take a stand on his or her own, which requires some development on their part, Putting a whole bunch of people together so that they can take a stand doesn't really amount to much. And he's got a very interesting discussion of this, actually several interesting discussions. I only want to look at the first. He says, it's very doubtful our age will be saved by the idea of sociality or association. And he says that in our age, the principle of association, which at best can have validity with respect to material interest, is not affirmative, but negative. It is an evasion, a dissipation, an illusion, whose dialectic is as follows. As it strengthens individuals, it vitiates them. It strengthens by numbers, by sticking together. But from the ethical point of view, this is weakening. And he tells us that not until the single individual has established an ethical stance, despite the whole world, not until then can there be any question of genuinely uniting. Otherwise, it gets to be a union of people who separately are weak. A union is unbeautiful and depraved as a child marriage, he says. So, you know, two people, young people getting married together and not really having having developed themselves to, to the degree that they need to. Well, you take a bunch of weak individuals and put them together into a group to enact some common purpose, they still remain weak and might be made even weaker as a result. Now, those are things that sort of cooperate with the times. What if you said, we're going to resist this process of leveling? We're not going to take this. We're going to be anti-modern or hyper-modern, or we're going to be conservative in this respect, or we're going to stand for true progress, whatever it's going to be, right? That's not really going to be a workable option either. Why? Because it actually plays into the process of leveling itself. Even though one doesn't realize it, even though one might be trying to stand against it. And it's very interesting to see how various forms of conservatism in just in the last, you know, century and a half, essentially either they held on to things stubbornly and then were washed over because they had their heads in the sand and, and really couldn't react to situations, or they end up abandoning conservatism entirely, even though they call themselves conservatives, embracing all sorts of other things and engaging in essentially nullification of contradiction where they like totally flip their sides you know the nra becomes against gun control when it was originally for gun control you know we come up with all sorts of examples of this sort of thing and so these are essentially doomed and so if you're gonna hitch your wagon to that proverbial star of a people of an idea of something like that that's going to resist leveling it's not really going to work so what's another possibility? You notice that Kierkegaard talked about the possibility of the single individual establishing an ethical stance despite the whole world. That means that they make a commitment, even knowing that they may not get rewarded for it, even knowing that they may be misunderstood in doing so. And Kierkegaard here is going to talk about the religious as well. Now in Kierkegaard's works, he will typically bring up the 
ethical and the religious as things that are, in some respect, not necessarily opposed to each other in the grand scheme of things, but certainly seem to be, and the, the religious being above the ethical, the ethical being something that can be understood, something that can be explained, something that applies to you know the whole, there's, there's various levels of it, and then the religious is this leap that one takes into the absurd and into obedience to God or love for God or, or something along those lines. Here, he's not making that such a strong a distinction, but there is a important connection here. So if we look at the passage where he first brings up the unrecognizables, I think we get to see where he's going. He says, in older structures, the non-commissioned officers, company commanders, generals, the hero, that is the men of excellence, the men prominent in the various ranks, the leaders were recognizable. Each one, according to his authority, along with his little detachment, was artistically and organically ordered within the whole, himself supported and supporting the whole. But now the men of excellence, the leaders, will be without authority because they will have divinely understood the diabolical principle of the leveling process. Like plainclothes policemen, they will be unrecognizable, concealing their respective distinctions and giving support only negatively, while the infinite uniformity of abstraction judges every individual and examines him in his isolation. And he says, this is the dialectical opposite to that of judges and prophets. And just as they risk the danger of not being respected for their respective authorities, so the unrecognized run the risk of being recognized, being seduced into acquiring status and importance as authorities, thus preventing the highest development. Like secret agents, they are unrecognizable, not according to private instructions from God, but they are unrecognizable because of their apprehension of the universal inequality before God because of their acceptance of the responsibility for this at all times. And so they have to resist the temptation of people making them into judges or prophets or authorities, and they have to go on doing what they're doing as the unrecognized. As you know, what in other places Kierkegaard will call the night of faith, possibly also the night of infinite resignation as well. It looks like here the ethical and the religious kind of occupy some of the same space. And so that's one of the options for the single individual. That is the option that Kierkegaard himself is pursuing. That's the option that he's suggesting to us, although he's not saying you must, thou shalt. That would be silly. It's up to every one of us authentically, existentially to decide for ourselves, do we want to do these things or do we want to do this? This is a decision between the present age and what Kierkegaard is calling eternity. He also thinks that there's a great opportunity for the single individual in his time. Why? Well, because the leveling process is not as all-powerful as we think that it is. I mean, it's all-powerful with respect to the world and with respect to society and culture, but... That doesn't mean that it actually closes off all possibilities for us. It doesn't mean that there's nothing else possible. And he's got this great discussion here about how it is that one might, here we go, one might not just resist and evade leveling, but tap into something going beyond it. He says, in its immediate and beautiful form, the principle of individuality prefigures the generation in the man of excellence, the leader, and has the subordinate individuals group around the representative. But in its eternal truth, the principle of individuality uses the abstraction and equality of the generation as levelers 
So it's using what the current world is doing and thereby religiously develops the cooperating individual into an essentially human being. By looking at the world, by looking at these processes and saying there's more than this. I believe there's more than this. I'm taking the risk. I'm taking the leap that there's more than this. Something more can happen. He says leveling is just as powerful with respect to the temporary as it is impotent with respect to the eternal. What is eternal in us? What is eternal in our relation to whatever is greater than us? In the real sense, could be God, could be something else. For Kierkegaard, obviously it is God, but there's discussions about what else it could be. Whatever is the eternal that has that sort of value, the leveling process can't really touch that. It can touch its worldly manifestations. It can keep you from being able to go to worship. It can ban books or make them no longer marketable so you can't get them. But it really can't touch the eternal because leveling is a temporal process. It is a process of the age. And so a little bit later on in the passage that I quoted just a, a few minutes ago, he tells us that the skepticism necessary for the proper development of individuality takes place in our age because of leveling, because so many things have been turned into, they're not actually the wonderful thing that we should idolize and throw our affection and our lives into. We can be like, well, yeah, I mean, that's not as great as we thought. So this skepticism, he says, is necessary in as much as every individual either is lost or disciplined by the abstraction, finds himself religiously. And this finding ourselves religiously taking the leap is the possibility for us. Now, these unrecognizables, there's one other thing to say about this. He tells us that the hopeless abstraction of leveling will be kept going without interruption by its servants, lest it all end with the return of an earlier structure. And these servants are, in fact, the servants of the power of evil, for leveling is not of God, and every good man will have times when he could weep over its hopelessness. But God permits it and wants to cooperate with individuals, that is, with each one individually, and draw the highest out of it. So Kierkegaard is taking a traditional Christian idea that God draws good out of evil, and he's not saying that, you know, I'm getting this from Revelation on high. He's saying this is how we can understand it existentially. He says the unrecognizables recognize the servants of love, but they don't use power or authority against them because then there would be a regression and they would be authorities. Only through a suffering act will the unrecognizable one dare contribute to leveling and by the same suffering act will pass judgment on the instrument. He doesn't dare to defeat leveling outright. He would be dismissed for that because that would be acting with authority. But in suffering, he will defeat it and thereby experience in turn the law of his existence, which is not to rule, to guide, to lead, but in suffering to serve, to help indirectly. And then here he says, those who have not made the leap probably won't recognize this. Those who have made the leap will have a vague idea that it was his victory, but they will not be certain because certainty could come only from him. And so what we've got here is a world in which potentially tens of thousands, even millions of people are these unrecognizables. And we can never quite be sure. Only they can be sure in their relation with, with the divine. 
But this holds out a possibility. And you might say, well, that's only a possibility, but that's all that Kierkegaard is pretending that it actually is for us. And in order to realize that possibility, one has to take the leap into existence and develop, as he says, as an essential human being. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.